Father, we ask that even as your word has been read, that the Holy Spirit would apply the words to our hearts now and our eyes to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a woman by the name of Sherry Turkle. She was a professor of social studies of science and technology at MIT wrote a book on how technology is replacing our relationships with other people. And in one particular chapter on robots, uh, she starts to explain uh, about this man, uh, Takanari Shibata. In the spring of 2009, she visited this day-long conference at MIT at a, a thing called the Age Lab, which focused on robots for the elderly. The problem being that Uh, In that day and age and in that particular time, there weren't enough people to take care of people. And so the great idea was to develop robots to do the work for them. Shibata, the inventor of the small, cute, seal-like, sociable robot named Pero, was the center of attention. Age Lab's mission was to create this technology for helping people with their physical and emotional needs. And so Sherry Turkle was a part of that research. She went to that uh, conference, and she began to conduct a bunch of other research involving visiting, uh, visiting homes and visiting uh, nursing homes and all of those different uh, areas uh, with seniors, bringing robots, having research assistants there to uh, observe the interaction between the two. And at one point, as she's at this conference, there's just an explosion of uh, a, a euphoria of excitement about the future and what this entailed, the potential of it. If we can uh, make robots to do this, we can make robots do anything. We can just develop a workforce. They'll do everything that we need. And there was this excitement in the air. Uh, there was a problem. And Turkle began to visit over, over many years these homes. And she, she says it, it often seemed clear that what kept seniors coming to sessions with robots was the chance to spend time with my intelligent, kind, and often physically attractive research assistants. Robots, sure, can fill a void. Technology can fill a void because uh, perhaps that humans can't. This doesn't always work because technology, while adept at much, even maybe perhaps more than what we're able to do, is incapable of some of the most simple things. Some of those simple things are also the things that we seem to need and desire the most. For example, love. I want to talk to you about the arrival of love. It's been said that an extension of God's love was God's creation. That God, not out of any deficiency in himself, not because he was lonely or needed a buddy, but God desiring to share the overflow of his benevolence, his goodness, his joy, his love, created what we see as the universe. He created creation out of a desire in himself to overflow, to share himself. And so the need for love is embedded in all of us who, as Genesis chapters 1 and 2 declare, were made in the image of God, reflections of God in his love. We were created in his image, and so the need and the desire 
to know love and to share love and to receive love and to give love is embedded deeply within us. Whereas Nat King Cole used to sing, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and to be loved in return. You were made for love. You were made to share it. You were made to receive it. But once we start speaking about this grand purpose, this need for love, sharing, receiving, doing, having, it opens up a litany of other questions, doesn't it? Like, what is love? Everyone has their version of what love is. And depending on what your version is, we can quickly cross wires speaking about stuff. We could be speaking about completely different things. You only have to travel so far as a radio station to hear songs about what true love is. Or you can turn on the television, watch a sitcom. You can read a novel, depending on what novel it is. It might be a romantic novel, it might be a depressing novel, but everything has an opinion about what love is. What is love? As Christians, our worldview is formed by something that transcends novels, right? Our worldview is, uh, is, is based on a worldview, or, or excuse me, our worldview is based on something that transcends movies and cultural opinion and trends. It's based on God's worldview. And if you're a Christian, the lens by which you view the world is the same lens by which God views you in the world. So how does God view love? If you look through the story of the Bible, which I hope you will, starting on January 1st, you will see a pattern always attaching itself to the word love. In fact, it's used interchangeably as God speaks to people like Moses and Abraham, so on and so forth. It's this word that we are a little out of touch with, perhaps, in our day and age, but it's called covenant or covenantal love. God's love is not sitcom love nor is it contractual love, nor is it any of those loves that we uh, recognize in our day and age. It is covenant love. And here's the difference. We are very steeped in a consumeristic, individualistic culture, right? Now, that's not to say that you sitting in your seat are an individualistic person or that you're a consumeristic person. You might love the Lord with all of your heart and you're following after him uh, undivided in your heart and in your desires, but you live in a culture that is individualistic and self-loving and very consumeristic. And those things work against us. uh, uh, Think of a Christian as in a current, trying to walk against the current nonstop. To the effect that if you ever stop or if you take a a breath or if you start to daydream, that current will draw you back. In other words, there is no standing still in our culture. You're either moving against the current or you're being dragged back by it. So what is the current dragging you into? Consumerism, right? This tendency to want to serve self. Now, consumerism is appropriate for some relationships. Think about it. So one person said, you know, I go to the grocery store. I've been going to this grocery store for many years. I know the checkers. The checkers know me. They know me by name. Uh, They gave me great deals. I know where the sugar is. I know where uh, aisle nine is. I know where everything is. It's cozy. They play the music that I want to play. I love this place. But if you find another grocery store that offers better products, 
at cheaper prices, you'll leave that first store to go to the other one, won't you? It's consumerism. That's fine. That's the reason why I, for many years, was commuting from Carpinteria to Santa Barbara. Trader Joe's, okay? So that's fine. There's appropriate relationships for that. But then there's other relationships in our life that God says, those need to, those need to be covenantal. And anything that involves the love of God is covenantal. Now, unlike consumerism, instead of self-serving, covenant love is self-giving. The love that God knows is measured primarily by what it's willing to give, not what it's willing to take or receive. This changes everything. So whenever God speaks of love, it grates at the way culture speaks of love. So anytime we speak about love in any situation, we've got to change the way we view about it, right? We've got to change our worldview. We're speaking about something that involves giving of myself to another, That's why it's so poignant for the matter at hand to read John chapter 3, 16. For God so loved, or quite literally, this is the way that God loved. He gave. How do we know that God is love? He gave. What did he give? He gave of himself. He gave his prized possession. He gave his son. How do you know what true love is in a way that transcends Everything that the world would have you believe, love involves self-sacrificial giving. And that is what we see in the first coming of Jesus. Love is purely defined as covenantal. It is a sacrificial commitment of God to his own people. God is sacrificially committed to his people. Love is a self-giving affection. It is an unselfish concern for someone else that moves the lover to action. This is God's love. And this is what the whole world desires to have. The problem with love, we see in the first section of what Uh, Garrett Mead uh, read for us in the scriptures that weird part where in verse 14 it alludes to Moses lifting up the snake in the wilderness. Then it goes on into the rest of that traditional passage. Perhaps for some of us we're like, oh, that's a weird insertion. (laughs) Uh, Moses and a snake. Okay, well, I'll just gloss over that part. But what the gospel writer John was doing was he was alluding back to Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9. I want to read this passage. It's really weird. So just hang on. I'll explain it in a second, but it's strange, okay? Let's just jump in together into the strangeness. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9. Here's the problem with love. Then they, speaking about Israel, set out from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The the people spoke against against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. Well, there's some strange elements to this passage, right? Why would God send a poisonous, venomous snakes when people are just complaining? There's two things. Can't get into this for the rest of the day, but I want to give you two things that perhaps will help. One, this wasn't just complaining, right? They didn't just stub their toe and just like throw out a curse word. Like this is pure rebellion. And as you read the book of Numbers through our Bible reading in January, uh, February, March, and so on, you will see a pattern in the nation of Israel that models or reflects humanity at large, a spirit of sinful rebellion. That is the problem, sinful rebellion. And this, as weird as the scene is, the venomous snakes, is really just think of it as an outburst of God's holiness against sin. And this is something we would expect from a righteous God, right? We desire for God to outbreak against evil. We want a just God to give evil its just desserts. We just don't want him to do it when it's us. We want mercy when it's us. But when injustices are perpetrated throughout the world, we want a benevolent God to rear his head and to take care of business. Well, that's exactly what he's doing. The problem is we are those who are unjust. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3, 23. And this is the diagnosis, not just of the nation of Israel, but of all people outside of God's realm. This is what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. The diagnosis of the human heart is not that we, you know, we grew up in a bad environment and we're victims of this and that, but that we are sinful rebels. Paul says, though we knew God, we did not glorify him, God, or show him gratitude. Instead, our thinking became nonsense, our senseless minds were darkened, claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of everything else. We turned worship to God into worship of ourselves, and we break the covenant that we were made for. So the problem of love is that people, listen, people in their sin are unlovable. Now, a statement like that tends to grate against the deepest part of some of us. A statement like that is a little hard to, to digest. People in our sin, we in our sin are unlovable. It's hard to digest because we are steeped in a culture that lauds self-esteem. We want to feel good about ourselves. Even if it has nothing to do with anything that we've done except show up. We want a pat on the back. We want to know that we are approved for no reason except that we exist. Now think of, think of some of these terms. Some of you would hear that statement that I just said, sin makes people unlovable. And you would say, well, no, God loves me. And that is the default mode of our culture. No, I deserve all good things. God loves me. I want to ask you this question. Why does God love you? Or if I could just drill a little deeper in that question and ask, why should God love you? Have you ever thought of that? Well, of course not. For some of us, we're just so self-entitled, we've never even thought that far. God loves me, because look, I'm awesome. 
Why should God love you? One of the first answers, perhaps, that's on the tip of many people's tongues is because I'm a good person. I've done enough good in this life. I'm not a bad person. I haven't killed anyone. I pay my taxes. I have a job. I, you know, gave to that uh, guy with the bell on State Street that one time in the middle of the cold. I'm a good person. Like, God should love me. Speaking of that, that sense of self-entitlement, there was a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith, a professor of sociology at Notre Dame that wrote about this tendency that we think that we deserve all of these things. He conducted this extensive study in 2006 on the religious climate of America, and he wanted to get to the bottom of what, uh, of what Christians who believed they were, uh, Americans who believed they were Christians really believed. America, if it is a Christian nation, what are, what's the core element of what we believe? His findings were startling. He coined a new term to describe the spiritual climate of America in three words. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Let me explain. What he saw and what he went on to describe in this overwhelming spiritual stance of most Americans is that most people believe that, yeah, there's a God. And that God exists somewhere, and he does some things, but he doesn't really get involved in our lives. There's no accountability. He's not involved in our lives in any meaningful way, and he doesn't require much from us, but he does expect us to be good. And so these are the three elements that he saw in most uh, Americans who claim to be spiritual. They are, th- there's an element of therapeutic. Uh, there's a therapeutic element. We are self-entitled. We want to feel good about ourselves. We don't necessarily need to deserve it. We just want to high-five for showing up into the classroom or into the room. Therapeutic. Moralism. God should love me because I've done good in my life. Deism. But he should keep his distance. Don't get too involved in my stuff because I, I want my own life, my own compartmentalized stuff. So just stay over there, but you know, reward me because I'm awesome when I do good things. But don't bother me. This describes the spiritual climate of our country. And we read our cultural baggage into things like love. When someone says God loves me, this is essentially maybe what they're saying. But God is covenantal. When God enters into a love relationship with someone, it's based on mutual love and mutual sacrifice. Yes, God gives everything. God gives all of his love to his people, but he also desires everything from them. He gives his whole life to his people, but he wants all of their life as well. Psalm 25 verse 10, all the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his covenant and decrees. And see what sin does, our rebellion? It excludes all of us from God's love. For in that we're saying, I don't need you. I have my own life, I wanna do my own thing. Just stick around to bless me whenever I need you, like a genie in the bottle. Once on Easter, and once on Christmas. But see, without God's love, We have no hope. Not only that, but if last week what we said was true about hope, God, uh, Jesus Christ coming again as king to spread hope, then those of us without God's love are in tremendous trouble if he's coming back to eradicate all that is evil and rebellious in this world. Without love, we have no hope. 
But that is the beauty of Jesus Christ's first coming. That Jesus is arriving to give both love and hope. And here is the extent of God's love that even though we bring a problem to the situation, Christ's love extends beyond all of our mistakes. It extends far beyond our sin and our fallibility and our, uh, our rebellion. It is far more tenacious than our sinful rebellion. It is far more uh, uh, manhandling than our own re- re- uh, rebellious religious tendencies. We see this in Paul, Romans 5 or 6 through 8, even though we are the problem. Paul says, but while we were still helpless at the appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were rebellious, Christ died for us. Before you ever gave him the thought, a a, a day in your mind, Christ died for you before you ever even looked in his general direction to consider if that's something that you wanted. Christ died for you. God proves his love for us in that while we hated him, he loved us and sent his prized possession and treasure to save our souls from our own sin. And this is what John was getting at in verse 14 through 15, that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness because of people's rebellion, so the Son of Man would be lifted up to a cross so that everyone who believes in him, looks upon him for their salvation, would have eternal life. You see, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of God's love, is that while we were sinners, Jesus Christ came down to earth to take the venom that you and I deserve. And you see, God is loving because he's committed to you. Not because you deserve that commitment. Not because you are inherently lovable, but because God is loving. And remember, he created you as a reflection of himself. And he wants to share. uh, 17th century Scottish theologian Henry Scougal once said that the, the worth an excellency of a soul is to be measured by is the object of its love. In other words, God doesn't love us because we're valuable. We're valuable because God loves us. And those of us without any purpose for existing, those of us without any purpose of waking up in the morning find tremendous purpose in being the object of God's own affection. The question follows, well, we see why God came the first time. Why did he come this, why is he coming the second time? Oh, you see, it's for a fuller realization of that love. It's for a fuller experience of God's love. That which you know now to a slight degree by faith, you will know in full detail when Christ comes back to finish the job. I like to compare it to experience I had before my daughter was born when my wife was pregnant with Abby you know all throughout that time I you know I loved my daughter even though I didn't see her couldn't feel her experience anything about her 
but it was a very limited experience, you know what I mean? I, I couldn't see, I couldn't feel, I didn't know what it was like, I've never had a kid before. It was almost like getting an oil change, you know what I mean? Like, I, I know this is good for my car, but I, I can't see the effect, I just paid $40 for an oil change, like I wish my car would go faster, right? I know it's good for my car in the long run, but I wish it did something that I could see. I want to go like 200 miles an hour because I got an oil change. That's kind of how I felt. That's perhaps like how some guys feel. Even though for Brianna, she at least felt this life inside of her. It was different for her. For me, it was just by faith. But I love my daughter. Even though I couldn't see, even though I, I, I didn't know by experience, my heart was still pounding. This is what it's like for us by faith in Christ. That's what Paul, uh, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 through 9. You, you love Jesus, though you have not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, in this life, we can experience the love of God by faith in Christ as the Holy Spirit enables us, but it's going to get way better. See, after Abby was born, everything changed. If while Brianna was pregnant, my heart was pounding, well, after Abby was born, my heart was exploding. I want to show you a picture of, a uh, recent picture of my daughter to give a little explanation. It's a little dark, but there she is sitting on her little rocking chair. And she, you can't see the shadows in her face, but she's actually like puckering her face and looking at me like this. <laughs> this morning as I was getting ready to, uh, to come to the high school, uh, she ran out of the bathroom with a, a toothbrush in her mouth. And she just ran full speed at my leg, ran into my leg so hard that she fell on her rear end and just looked up, to, looked up at me. And she just started blowing kisses at me. She, she, she can't, like, make the sucking sound. Mwah. So she goes, wah. Wah. <laughs> I had no idea what I was in store for when Brianna was pregnant. But now my heart is exploding. That is what your salvation is going to be like when it is consummated by the soon coming return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the Apostle John spoke about. He said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. But dear friends, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet been revealed, right? Oil change, not yet. Love by faith, not by sight. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And in that moment, you will rush into the arms of your God, your master, your savior, your lover, your friend. And you will see him for the first time endowed in glory and clothed in splendor. And all of your tears will be wiped away. And all of your sorrows will be dealt with. And all of those things that were dragging you down will be replaced by a love that you have never experienced in this life, but that you have tasted and seen and whetted your appetite with and desired more. That is what is waiting for you on the other side. 
second advent is that God's love will be more fully experienced, but not only fully experienced, forever experienced. Paul said, I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, hostile powers, height, depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where you're headed. And that's why Christ arrived the way that he did. And that's why he's going to arrive the way that he will come. How do you receive this love? John told us, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Literally, when he, John is saying to believe into Jesus Christ. To believe into him. Referring to a direction, a goal, a resting place. Meaning that all your hope and all of your desires, all of your, uh, all of your, uh, des- uh, all of your ambition, all of your uh, dreams, all that you long for in this life, your, your appetites given to you by God himself, those things that we tend to put into idols, John is saying, need to be now put into the person of Jesus Christ, that we are to believe into the person of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, you know you're saved. Brothers and sisters, you don't need to feel better about yourself. Some of you have come and you are looking for just a three-point explanation about what you need to do in this life to feel better about yourself. Or perhaps you're racked with guilt and shame and you just need a pat on the back to be told that you're okay in this life. You are not okay in this life apart from God. Your best hope to be loved with a covenantal, eternal love is to know that you don't just need to feel better about yourself. You need to be loved and accepted by a holy God. And your sin has created a gulf. But rest assured, my friend, God is love and the extent of his love has been shown on the cross of Jesus Christ that his love might be lavished on those who by faith are united to Jesus Christ. My question for all of you in this room today is what are you going to do with Christ's first arrival? Because he's coming back to claim his own. Who do you belong to? I want to close with a story. There's a famous theologian considered to be one of the best, and I believe it was a 20th century, Karl Barth, one of the brightest thinkers, was renowned for writing millions of words of theology. For example, Church Dogmatics, which stretches about 12 volumes, just one of his works, wrote millions of words. He's a great thinker. It was one day at the Rockefeller Chapel uh, on the campus of the University of Chicago during a lecture that he was giving in the U.S. in 1962. And after his lecture, he conducted a Q&A time, and some of the college students sat down and asked Barth if he could summarize his whole life's work in theology in a simple sentence. The older wise man sat down. He seemed to think about it for a minute, and 
And as if a light went on, he paused, looked up at the student and replied, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Brothers and sisters, if you do not know true love, I want to invite you to find it at the foot of the cross today, where it is waiting for you free of charge, and it is the best gift you will ever receive in this life. Merry Christmas. Heavenly Father, we ask today that that which we need the most would be found in your beloved Son. For those in this room who are far off, pray that you would draw them near. Christian and non-believer alike, those of us who feel isolated and excluded, perhaps feel alone. Those of us who are racked with shame and guilt, I pray that you would come to the rescue, that you would breathe deeply and that you would speak loudly into their hearts today and you would reveal yourself to them. Pray today, God, that none of us would leave this building without knowing the sheer love of God as seen in the face of Jesus Christ. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would taste everlasting life pray that you would lavish that on us today as a church, that we would be able to turn back and reflect it back on you in worship and joy. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.